This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. My name is Dr. Sudha Prathakanti, and I'm one of the integrative psychiatrists at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine. And Dr. Priya Jain is with me here as well as the co-chair for this mini medical school series. And it's my pleasure today to welcome everyone to the session that will be focused on yoga for enhancing mental health. And um, it's also my pleasure today to introduce my two co-presenters for this evening, who will be sharing their experiences and expertise with us during the session. So uh, Ryan and Kate, if you could please come on camera. Great, thank you. So I'm going to be introducing Kate Holcomb first. So Kate is a Yoga Alliance registered yoga teacher, and she's accredited as a yoga therapist by the International Association of Yoga Therapists. She's the founder and director of Healing Yoga Foundation, which is a nonprofit project of Commonweal. And Kate began her yoga education in 1991 as a private student of TKV Deskachar, who you all um, got a chance to uh, learn a little bit about during uh, our opening introduction. So he's a direct student of Krishnamacharya. So uh, Kate began her yoga education as a student of Deskachar in Chennai, India, returning many times for extended periods of intensive one-on-one -on -one study. In conjunction with her yoga studies, Kate has also studied Sanskrit at UC Berkeley and at the Kukkaswami Shastri Research Institute in Chennai, India. She has over 25 years of experience working with individuals facing a broad range of health concerns and has taught yoga for many different Bay Area organizations. So welcome, Kate, and thank you so much for your contributions this evening that are coming up. And then I am now going to be introducing you to Ryan Shaver. Um, Ryan is a graduate of UC San Diego with bachelor's degrees in visual arts media and philosophy of mind, brain, and cognitive science. He's recently completed his philosophy graduate work from California State University, Long Beach, and will be graduating this spring. Ryan currently works in San Francisco at an educational technology startup and has been working towards a career in data visualization. Outside of work, Ryan has been engaged with a local improv theater troupe and has been practicing yoga, writing comedy, walking about in the Presidio, and is currently writing a memoir on the experience which brought him to work with me at the UCSF Osher Center back in 2020. So you'll be hearing more from Ryan. Thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us. We'll be hearing more from Ryan uh, later this evening. But at this point, I'm going to go, go ahead and start my slide deck and uh, give everybody a brief overview of yoga as a mind-body medicine before we uh, have a chance to hear from Kate and Ryan. So according to national surveys by the National Institutes of Health, the use of yoga and meditation as a complementary medicine continues to grow quite dramatically in the United States. Um, currently, um, yoga practice among U.S. adults in the most recent year that we have data doubled from 2007 to 2017, with 14% of U.S. adults in 2017 reporting that they had practiced yoga at some point in the previous year. Yoga consistently ranks in the top three complementary modalities that are used in the United States, um, currently third behind use of supplements and deep breathing exercises. 
These national surveys have established that the general public uses yoga not only to maintain wellness, but also to treat specific health conditions. Depression and anxiety consistently rank among the most common health conditions self-treated with yoga. Now, notably, other mind-body therapies that are frequently used by the public to self-treat depression and, and, and anxiety include breathing exercises, meditation, relaxation techniques, and these are all actually key elements of yoga practice. The appeal of yoga may be related to its relatively low cost, ease of access, high social acceptance, and the perception that yoga focuses on the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Moreover, yoga practices are associated with a relatively favorable risk-benefit profile and are easily adapted for a wide range of practitioners, including seniors or individuals with medical problems for whom other physical activity may be difficult. Now, as the public interest in mood benefits of yoga has increased, there's been a commensurate increase, quite a dramatic increase in scientific investigation of yoga as a potential treatment for depression and other uh, depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric illnesses. Now, since my area of uh, special interest is in depression, I actually put together um, this, uh, this graphic here uh, showing, um, first of all, that the use of uh, that, the, that the randomized control trial data, just investigating yoga for any health condition has increased exponentially. You can really see the difference here from the early 2000s up until the uh, time that this review was done in 2019. Now, in the first systematic review of yoga specifically for depression, that was conducted in 2005. And at that point only included five randomized control trials of yoga studies. A decade later in 2015, 24 individual randomized control trials of yoga for depression had been identified, which represents nearly a five-fold increase and then just from 2015 until now 2022, that number has grown yet again and is actually uh, well above um, 35 at this point in terms of published randomized control trial data. So it's really, really um, caught on both in terms of scientific investigation as well as public interest. And in 2016, the NIH awarded over $100 million to support yoga and mindfulness-based research. I just wanted to share with you all a um, little schematic of a pilot randomized controlled trial of yoga for major depression that my colleagues and I at the UCSF Osher Center conducted a few years ago. Um, this was uh, published a few years ago back in PLOS. And at this time that we can, uh, undertook the study, this was actually the first investigation of yoga as a monotherapy for major depression um, anywhere outside of India. So we were really curious to see whether some of the mood benefits of yoga, which had been reported in India, would hold up here in the United States as well when yoga was used as a standalone treatment for major depression. So what we did was we recruited 38 individuals from the San Francisco community who met criteria for major depression of mild to moderate severity. And we specifically excluded individuals who were engaged in psychotherapy, antidepressant pharmacotherapy, herbal or nutraceutical mood remedies, or any other uh, mind-body um, therapy at all, like Tai Chi or Qigong. The reason we did this is that we wanted to really make sure that we were studying yoga as the only intervention during the study period. We didn't want there to be co-interventions uh, with other um, modalities, which may have some mood benefit. And then here at this next little mnemonic here, 
What we did is that we randomized all eligible participants into one of two instructor-led intervention groups. There was a yoga practice group that was assigned to 90 minutes of Hatha Yoga practice twice weekly for eight weeks, and then an attention control group that was assigned to 90 minutes of educational seminars on yoga history twice weekly for those same eight weeks. The results are here in the next study, uh, next slide here. So what we showed were that um, in the intent to treat uh, regression analysis, which is considered the most rigorous way of analyzing the data that was collected, in the ITT regression analysis, yoga participants exhibited a significantly greater eight-week decline in back depression inventory scores than their counterparts that were in the control group. And the back depression inventory is just a standard um, questionnaire that's been validated to, um, to quantify the severity of depression. So compared to controls, a yoga group had a significantly greater decline in back scores. And um, we also looked in a second, um, we also looked at uh, a second ITT analysis in which we controlled for the number of sessions that had been attended by the participants, just to make sure that the reason that we got those really good scores um, in terms of the, the reduction in back scores in the yoga group was because maybe the, maybe the folks in the yoga group actually attended more sessions and therefore got more benefit than the ones who were, um, that were in the control group. So we actually controlled for attendance and did a second regression analysis. And it continued to show that the yoga group had significantly greater reduction in back scores uh, compared to the folks in the control group. However, we did know that the back scores didn't really differentiate between the two groups till about the eight-week mark, you can see here. So both groups started with similar scores on the back, um, which put them in the mild to moderate severity range. And in the first two weeks, both groups actually had a significant drop in back scores. And that's not unusual. Anytime people participate in a study, we know from past experience that their depression scores tend to be alleviated just because they're doing um, a lot more, they're getting a lot more interaction than they usually do when they're in a depressed place. They're having a lot more um, attention from instructors, from study coordinators who are calling them up and setting them up for appointments and so on. So just by the sheer effect of getting out of the usual rut or the usual routine that most people with depression fall into, just by changing that, we know by, um, by lots and lots of data that people's depression scores tend to get, get lower. But then between week two and week six, depression scores between the two groups stayed about the same. But then between week seven and six and week eight, that was when the folks that were in the yoga group actually started to have significant improvement in their, um, I'm sorry, the, the yoga group is in blue here. They started, they continued to decline in their uh, back scores where they actually ended up having a significant difference from their starting score here. Whereas the people in the control group actually between week six and week eight, once the novelty of being in the control group and getting that extra attention and interaction had sort of worn off, their depression scores actually went back up to what they had been towards the beginning. So there was no real significant difference for them at the end of eight weeks between the starting back score and the ending back score. But for those that were in the yoga group, there was definitely a significant reduction. 
So we were trying to make sense of why there had been this delay for the yoga group in seeing mood benefits. And this may simply reflect the fact that um, yoga specific mood benefits may have a delayed onset because it takes time for participants to learn and master the yoga exercises that have been assigned to them. And it also takes time for the factors that are potentially mediating the mood benefits of yoga to exert a measurable benefit. So that brings us to our next topic, which are um, how is it that yoga and any other um, uh, any other uh, psychotherapy or therapeutic intervention may work to heal emotional distress? So traditionally, there we sort of conceptualize this as um, two different pathways of healing. They're called the top down, the so-called top down approaches, and the bottom up approaches. So traditional talk-based psychotherapy, including mindfulness-based cognitive therapies, are viewed as a top-down approach to treatment. So what this means is that we are using the intervention to resolve symptoms by working with the prefrontal cortex of the brain. It's the area of the brain most responsible for logic and reason. A top-down approach starts with looking at how the mind is interpreting information, such as the stressful um, events that are happening around them, and how we can make sense of those events and adapt to them. So top-down approaches focus first on the cognitive aspect of the challenge that's being faced by the person and targets um, and targets these frontal lobes. So this logic first approach may really work great for some people, but may be less effective if your brain has experienced trauma, because a trauma response tends to bypass the higher cognitive processes and instead activates the sensory and emotional processing areas of the brain that are responsible for the fight, flight, or freeze response. So in summary, the top-down interventions, including all psychotherapies, really focus on influencing the thought patterns and cognitive processes that affect the way that we end up feeling in our body. Now, in contrast to this, the bottom-up approach or the, the set of um, therapies that are considered to be bottom-up begin with information that's acquired from the body sensations, such as sight, sound, touch, and so on. The bottom-up approach understands that body sensations and emotional reactions happen first before we can actually access the rational areas of the brain. Therefore, bottom-up interventions work by accessing the limbic system, which is the part of our brain that really processes emotions. And it also directly targets sensory receptors, which are located throughout the body. The idea here with bottom-up approaches is to use sensory information to develop a sense of safety within your own body and to slow down the activation or arousal response of fight, flight, or freeze. Now, ultimately, both top-down and bottom-up approaches promote self-regulation. So what is self-regulation? So self-regulation is the ability to monitor and control one's behavior, emotions, and thoughts, and alter them in accordance with a stressful situation. Yoga provides a variety of practical skills to support and develop self-regulation, resilience, and self-care for those of us who are encountering challenging situations. Yoga practices, remember, include physical postures, breath regulation, meditative practices, and also ethical practices of self-discipline and service to self and others, which are considered in the ancient context as the internal and external virtues of character. 
So all four of these ancient foundational components of yoga can provide a, a variety of um, helpful uh, interventions when people are dealing with depression and anxiety, and they comprise both top-down as well as bottom-up tools. And so this is really one of the really unique things about yoga compared to a lot of other complementary treatments is that it invokes both sets of uh, interventions, both bottom-up and top-down tools. And they work together to really lower and control stress as well as to improve overall mental and physical health. So this is just a graphic showing how posture practice, breath, breath regulation, ethics, and, um, and meditative techniques can all um, work together to help affect positive change. So ethics and meditation practices are considered top-down tools, and they really primarily focus on the mind, uh, and that really affects motivational drive, goal setting, and becoming more attentive and aware to one's internal state. Whereas bottom-up tools, which include the physical postures and breath exercises, focuses on the body's physio physiology to send a message to the brain that it's okay to relax. And it actually activates the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our rest and relaxed response, so that we basically recover faster when we're exposed to stress. And then these bottom-up tools also improve motor and sensory body awareness, spatial attention and balance, all of which can be very helpful for other uh, health conditions as well. So this is a little bit of a busy slide. Uh, don't get too overwhelmed by it, but um, I just put it up here just to show, let's to just to put together in a little bit more of a detailed way, the bi-directional pathways of healing that yoga really opens us up to. So just once more, just in a different, um, just with using different graphics here, we're just saying that contemplative yoga practices, which are top down practices, these are the ones up here, contemplative yoga practices, um, basically target an individual's cognitive affective state. And research shows that they influence adaptive activity in the cortical areas of the brain. So these are, this is the, the sort of the part of our brain that primates and humans share, and it's considered to be a higher, um, higher level processing, cognitive processing uh, happens there in the cortical areas. So um, there's research, good research showing that yoga practices influence adaptive activity in these cortical areas, whereas they downregulate the threat detection system that's available in the amygdala. So that would be kind of this area here, the amygdala and the limbic system, which are basically the ones that get very activated um, over during chronic stress. So they really downregulate the amygdala and the limbic system from um, overreacting to stress or from helping to relax more quickly after stress has happened. So concurrent, concurrent with these changes in brain activity, yoga practitioners often will experience reductions in both psychological stress as well as physiological arousal. And this, these sort of changes, as I said, are linked to an increase in the parasympathetic nervous system. That's our rest and relax um, autonomic nervous system and decreased sympathetic tone. And sympathetic nervous system is the one that's responsible for our fight, flight, or freeze response. So when this happens, there's basically a reduced um, production of inflammatory cytokines and a reduction in stress hormones that are controlled through the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Now, in contrast to these top-down processes, again, bottom-up processes, 
are mechanisms such as breath work and asanas, and these can increase musculoskeletal exertion and increase cardiovascular output. And when you do that, when you exert yourself in terms of physical activity, then that also causes a downstream effect, which causes a reduction in stress hormones, an increase in parasympathetic nervous system, a decrease in the sympathetic nervous system. So when, uh, whether you go top down or bottom up, you basically end up converging on a similar uh, reduction in the uh, release of stress hormones and in the increase in the relaxation response. And this has a lot of different health benefits that are measurable in the body, including increased enhanced heart rate variability, uh, modulation of immune function with decreased inflammation, and um, also the gut microbiome also feeds back to the brain and uh, influences uh, a calming down and relaxation uh, in terms of mood and behavior. So recent advances in molecular biology have really made this a very uh, exciting area of investigation in terms of understanding, uh, again, the mechanisms by which yoga may exert its effects. So these recent advances have really shown that there are potential epigenetic mechanisms that are related to how yoga works. So epigenetics are really all about epigenetics and epigenomics. They're all, it's research looking at how certain parts of our DNA get turned on and turned off by various lifestyle changes that we make. Uh, and yoga is a very important lifestyle change, but other ones include the foods that we eat and um, the sort of uh, environments that we subject ourselves to in terms of taking a walk in nature versus being in a crowded urban environment and so on. So it turns out that these lifestyle changes actually can have an immediate effect on which proteins our DNA ends up coding and producing and which ones get turned off. So that, that whole area of what gets turned on and what gets turned off um, is called epigenetics. And sometimes it's called epigenomics as well when we're looking at the entire DNA. Epigenetics is when we're looking at specific genes that get turned on and turned off. But this is a really exciting new area of emerging research, which is uh, really giving us a better explanation too of how yoga might work. Um, it's really giving us a lot of potential um, pathways of investigation. So um, there's just so many different studies in this arena. So I'm not going to try to cover all of them. Uh, but I think what I'll just do here is just highlight this one that, that uh, is here, which is a really nice review article, which looked at um, yoga and a number of other mind-body interventions, including uh, meditative practices and mindfulness practices. It looked at all of these different uh, mind-body therapies, which basically are uh, probably related to yoga. And they basically uh, focused on looking at observable molecular and genetic changes that may underlie the health benefits of these different mind-body therapies. And all of these studies indicate um, that there's a down-regulation of nuclear factor kappa B pathway in response to yoga and other mind-body interventions. And this particular pathway is involved in an organism's response to stress at the cellular level. So increase in the nuclear factor kappa B pathway um, indicates that the inflammatory processes are in play, whereas a reduction of this pathway signals reduced stress and a reduced risk of inflammation-related diseases 
including, interestingly, um, major depression. So not only cancer and um, heart disease, but also major depression is actually implicated um, in having high levels of inflammatory cellular response. So the fact that yoga can actually decrease this um, cellular response uh, and they were able to demonstrate this via um, very robust uh, epigenomic studies is, is really a major uh, step forward. And it also shows that while acute inflammation is a short-lived, so we just want to point out that acute inflammation is actually adaptive in the short run, right? So like when you're immediately having an injury or uh, fighting off an infection, it's actually adaptive to have acute inflammation because this is what mobilizes our immune system to deliver um, the metabolites that are important for the healing response to get activated. But if it becomes a chronic long-standing response, and it's no longer adaptive. So chronic inflammation is maladaptive and actually poses a health risk. So um, this is one really interesting meta-analysis that really looked at all of these studies and showed uh, pretty convincingly how they have some common um, epigenomic pathways that might explain the efficacy of uh, mind-body therapies. So many, many others that I could talk about um, there, in addition to these that I've listed here, there are numerous uh, emerging studies that are showing that just eight to 12 weeks of yoga and or meditation, yoga asanas or meditation can impact levels of cortisol, uh, interleukin-6, which is another inflammatory protein, telomerase activity and DNA methylation. So telomerase is uh, the enzyme in our body that is responsible for repairing DNA um, because DNA, every time it replicates, there is a certain bit of unraveling that can happen um, at the ends of these chromosomes. So telomerase is responsible for, for repairing that damage that's done so that you get less aging of our DNA and less cellular um, aging overall. So if we have more telomerase, um, it's better for repairing. If you have a reduced telomerase, it's, uh, it sort of doesn't bode as well in terms of repairing uh, the effects of cellular aging with each cycle of uh, replication of DNA. So um, just lots of great data now that's starting to emerge showing that yoga can actually increase telomerase activity and will also have real effects in terms of DNA methylation, turning on and turning off some key um, key genes, that the some essential genes which regulate the rate at which uh, cells decline and age. So um, lots more research to come that's very exciting. And uh, I can't get into all of that for you guys, but um, encourage you to look that up if you're interested in learning more. And uh, before we close out, I just wanted to um, let you know about a, a, long, a, a larger scale randomized controlled trial of yoga for depression that we're currently putting together at UCSF. This is a follow-up to that pilot study that I mentioned to you at the beginning. So what we're going to do now is look at a larger cohort of people um, with major depressive disorder and seeing whether we can get similar positive findings from assigning folks to the yoga practice group versus an education control group. But in this particular cycle of the study, what we're writing in is actually, in addition to looking at back depression inventory scales as our primary outcome measure, we are also going to be looking at various serum biomarkers that will help us to pinpoint whether what the mechanisms of action might be that would be accounting for um, any positive benefits of yoga that we that we end up 
hopefully finding uh, within this study. So um, we're going to be looking to see whether those in the yoga practice group end up having higher levels of serum, telop serum telomerase and BDNF, which is another um, key factor that is associated with uh, improved depression outcomes, and also whether um, there is decreased cellular aging by looking at some clock genes and looking at methylation patterns of clock genes, and also looking at uh, biomarkers of increased inflammation, interleukin-6 and cortisol. So if any of you in the audience are interested in potentially participating in this clinical trial, we're probably going to be opening it up for um, recruitment, hopefully later this fall. So go to the clinical trials website at UCSF and keep your eye out for um, recruitment to start later this fall. I will now turn things over to our co-presenter, Kate Holcomb. So Kate, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here today with all of you. Um, I'm going to start. Um, I'm going to share a little bit of my background so that I can introduce you to yoga's approach to healing and then give you some practical examples and an experience of some of these tools, which can be done anywhere, anytime, and that you can start practicing and sharing with others even today. My introduction to yoga was a lucky accident. In 1991, I was hit by a motorcycle while studying in South India as part of a university study abroad program. The great yoga master Sri TKV Desikachar was on the faculty. And after my accident, the co-director of the program, a woman named Mary Lou, brought me to Sri Desikachar, who designed a healing practice of gentle stretches and conscious breathing. This made sense to me. It seemed like physical therapy, but with conscious breathing, and it addressed my whole system instead of just my injuries. This is what Suda referred to earlier as the bottom-up approaches. But a few years later, I was able to experience the real depth of yoga's healing potential. Mary Lou was dying of cancer, and as I spent the last three weeks of her life with her, I was able to witness firsthand how despite great physical pain, and of course, wishing she could live much longer. She was not suffering. Mary Lou had been a longtime student of Sri Desikachar's father and teacher, Sri T. Krishnamacharya, who you all have heard about by now, and who is uh, world-renowned as the father of modern yoga. And it was clear to me that it was her years of yoga practice, both the physical practices and the study and practice of the yoga philosophy, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, that helped her to face her death with acceptance and grace. Simply put, just as the Yoga Sutra teaches, even though she was not able to change her circumstance, she was able to influence her experience and therefore reduce her experience of suffering. And that is the most powerful kind of healing, even in the face of death. I started the nonprofit Healing Yoga Foundation in 2006 in order to share the healing practices of yoga with anyone regardless of background, experience, ability, or financial means. And it often surprises people that the primary tool I turn to for healing is the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, the authoritative text on yoga philosophy over 2,000 years old. In chapter two of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, the text outlines a model for healing. The Hayam is the suffering we want to neutralize, often the symptoms we may be experiencing or we're struggling with. This could be any symptom, physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. 
And at the mental and emotional levels, this is what I call the avoidable suffering. Things like blame, shame, guilt, regret, that all that shoulda, coulda, woulda, why me talk. The hate is the cause of those symptoms, the next one, which we may or may not know. According to Yoga Sutra, the avoidable suffering that I refer to is caused by wrong understanding, incorrect understanding, and an ability to distinguish specifically the inability to distinguish between our true self, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a bit, and the fluctuations of the mind and the emotions. The third one, the Hanum, is the goal which is to reduce our experience of suffering and feel better. And we do this, the goal according to the Yoga Sutra is a word called kaivalyam, which my teacher Sri Desikachar translates as independence, meaning that our mood, our happiness is not dependent on our situation or our circumstance. And I elaborate on Mr. Desikachar's definition for my own students as um, that independence is to be empowered to consciously choose your response instead of reacting unconsciously from old patterns so that you can then influence your experience and feel better. And this is exactly what Mary Lou was able to do in her dying process, right? She couldn't change her circumstance, but she was able to influence her experience. Finally, the last one, the upayam, are the means. These are the tools and strategies to help us attain this goal, and the Yoga Sutra is full of them. The Yoga Sutra is full of so many practices to help us focus the mind, connect with the authentic self, and learn how to differentiate between those two, between that quiet, steady inner resource of the authentic self or true self, uh, whatever you want to call it, and the constantly changing experiences of the mind-body emotions. And it is this discernment that helps us to reach our goal of conscious choice, no matter the circumstance. And as Suda spoke of earlier, most of these practices would be considered top-down practices. Again, as Suda showed us, yoga includes both top-down and bottom-up practices. And in addition to this, there are two other primary reasons why yoga is such a powerful support for healing, regardless of diagnosis or prognosis. Number one, yoga recognizes that each person uh, as a, is an individual. It's not a cookie cutter approach. It's not a one size fits all approach. And as such, there are many different practices, tools, and strategies to choose among so that the practice can and should be adapted to each person's individual needs, abilities, and interests for maximum benefit. So you can see on this slide, uh, on the left next to the Heyam Heitu Hanamupayam is this, uh, an image of this symbolic representation of Patanjali, who is credited as the codifier of the Yoga Sutra, just these 195 aphorisms that make up the authoritative text on yoga. And you can see in the symbolic representation that Patanjali is uh, visually, is given these thousand hoods. You can see there are many, instead of a head, there's many, many, it's a thousand different serpent Hoods. And these thousand hoods represent, uh, illustrate how the Yoga Sutra is not a one solution for one problem. It's not a one size fits all. These thousand hoods represent um, each a, a thousand different students with a thousand different complaints or ailments or problems or situations or inclinations. And, and also those thousand hoods are many, those many different solutions, possible possibilities to help serve each individual. So that's, uh, 
that individualized approach is inherent in the symbolism of the tantra. Number two, yoga is such a powerful support for healing because it addresses the whole system and provides practices that support each level. Yoga recognizes the human system is comprised of five overlapping layers called koshas, also known as the Panchamaya model. You can see from this slide that the outermost layer is the physical level or the anamaya. Moving inward, the next layer is the energetic and breath level or the prana. Next is the level of the mind or the intellect called the manomaya. Then the personality or vijnana maya. And finally, at the very center, at our deepest core, is the emotional level or the ananda maya. This model is so effective for healing because it recognizes that whenever we experience pain or illness at one dimension, the other dimensions are also affected. So, for example, when I stub my toe, I have a physical experience of pain. And as a result, my breath will likely shift to maybe tightened, shallow, or rapid breaths. My mind might start racing and worrying. You know, maybe I've broken my toe. Maybe I need medical care. Depending on my personality, I might adopt an attitude of, you know, I'm fine, you know, one of denial, or I might go the other direction, you know, be more tend toward hypochondria. You know, maybe I'll never walk again, you know. And I may also experience an emotional response, such as an outburst of anger or maybe anxiousness, right, or fear, or even just a shift in my mood. Because yoga understands that when one dimension of the system is impacted and affected, so are the others, yoga offers many different tools to help support each of these levels. It also recognizes that a tool which supports one level will often influence and support the other levels of the system as well, so that multiple dimensions of the system are supported simultaneously. So, for example, gentle and appropriate physical movement can not only improve strength and flexibility, and ideally help reduce pain and other physical symptoms, but physical movement can also help the breath become more steady, more calm, more even. And that can help focus and quiet the mind and can even help shift our emotional state. In the same way, conscious breathing practices can help reduce physical pain and other symptoms. It can also help focus the mind and it can also help influence our emotions. Progressive deep, deep relaxation, meditation and visualization techniques and practices can not only help us focus and quiet the mind, but can also result as well in less physical pain and other symptoms such as stress, anxiety or again, shifting our, um, our emotional state. As an example of how yoga tools can support every level of the human system, I'd like to share one of my favorite and in my experiences, most effective yoga practices for healing. So um, the practice that I'd love to share with you is one of my favorite. It's one of the most um, simple and it's also one of the most powerful. It's relaxed diaphragmatic breathing. You can do it anywhere. You can do it in a car. You can do it sitting. You can do it lying down. You can do it waiting in the doctor's office or stuck in traffic or at your carpool pickup line or even in your grocery line, wherever. It's very, really could do it anywhere. You can do it with your eyes open or closed. So I want to invite you right now to just take a moment and make sure you're in a comfortable position. Find any comfortable position sitting or lying down. You can have eyes open or closed, and I'm going to back up a little bit so you can um, see me a little bit better. So relaxed diaphragmatic breathing, it starts with just trying to keep the abdomen nice and soft and relaxed. 
and allowing for the movement, the natural movement of the diaphragm with each breath. So you're going to start and might even help to place um, your palms on your abdomen. That might help a little bit too. So you're going to start just nice, soft, relaxed abdomen, shoulders relaxed, make sure you're comfortable. And um, as you inhale, keep the abdomen nice and soft. And as you inhale, we'll see if you'll be able to see this on the screen. As you inhale, the diaphragm moves down and the abdomen's going to expand, come out a little bit. And then as you exhale, the diaphragm moves up and the abdomen just slightly gently contracts. So you want to keep this within your comfort zone. Make sure there's nothing forced, nothing uh, uncomfortable. And just try that for a few more breaths. Nice and relaxed. Inhale. Allow that abdomen to expand on the inhale. Exhale. Allow the abdomen to softly contract. So again, nice and easy. Nothing forced, just keeping the abdomen soft, allowing the abdomen to gently expand with each inhale as the diaphragm moves down and softly contract as the diaphragm moves up. So try a few more breaths, actually, just a couple more breaths. And you can even keep going as I'm talking. So don't feel like you, uh, <laughs> you, can't, you can't keep practicing. So even those few breaths can make a really powerful and uh, difference in how you feel. Maybe already you've noticed a little bit of a difference. You know, um, it can help you feel more relaxed, maybe less anxious. Um, it can even be a nice distraction from pain. Um, and even if you don't notice a difference physically, this practice of relaxed diaphragmatic breathing um, helps really helps support the system at every level. It um, first and foremost helps support that parasympathetic that Suda spoke of earlier, really helps the relaxation response, especially if you can keep it nice and soft, nothing forced. Um, it's also a great support for the lymph system. So the, your whole system, even if you don't notice a change right away, it's incredibly supportive. And of course, it's a great way to help just quiet the mind and connect with that quiet inner resource of the authentic self. Speaking of which, uh, when I work with uh, all my students, I work with whatever their diagnosis or prognosis, I tell my students that the goals of my work are threefold. I have three different goals for each of them and I, for all of them. And I try to meet each of these goals with every single student I work with, no matter what they're dealing with or seeking support for. The first one is I try to empower my students with simple, practical, accessible tools and techniques to help reduce pain, manage symptoms and side effects so that they feel better, right? And this could be gentle movement, conscious breathing, reflective or meditative practices, guided relaxation, or working with concepts from Yoga Sutra, right? So both top down and bottom up, right, as we spoke about. My second goal is I'm always trying to keep that parasympathetic autonomic nervous system response dominant, no matter what, what Suda spoke of earlier. It's probably the most important thing I'm trying to do. It's such a powerful, you know, she got into some of the data. It's such a, makes such a difference for our healing and yoga is really just so many of the yoga practices are just an ideal uh, way to do this. So supporting immune function and overall health by trying to keep that relaxation response or rest and relax that parasympathetic dominant 
um, and keep the autonomic nervous system in balance. That's number two. And number three, again, any practice, my hope always is that you can connect with that quiet inner resource of strength, and wisdom, of deep joy, uh, deep peace, that place of your own, you know, shining radiant light, right? That's unique to you that, that Yoga Sutra talks about. And that I often refer to as just your true self or your authentic self. And that's, that resource is always there within you, no matter how challenging it may be, no matter how dark it may feel or actually be around you. So that no matter what your circumstance or situation, you can always come to that place as a resource, even if you can't change or influence your current situation, uh, which sometimes we can, but, but many times we can't change our circumstance. And in so doing, right, that's how we end up uh, getting to the place where we feel empowered to consciously um, choose our response and therefore influence our experience, no matter what we might be dealing with. Um, and of course, no matter what the situation, no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis, right? This is actually the goal of all the yoga practices. So I want to take a, a few more minutes, relaxed diaphragmatic breathing to go back to the relaxed diaphragmatic breathing. Hopefully you've been practicing a little bit while I talked about that. And I want to add something to that because relaxed diaphragmatic breathing is so powerful in and of itself, but it can also be combined and ideally you know, whether you're doing um, conscious movement, you know, uh, the asanas or a reflective or meditative practice, you are, you're always doing this conscious, relaxed diaphragmatic breathing, no matter what. So it can be very easily combined with many other practices. So I want to take another minute to teach you a practice that I love um, because it's very helpful. Again, you can do it anywhere. I have students who have done this practice uh, in traffic with one arm on the steering wheel and the other hand in our lap, you're going to use your hands and I'm going to hold my hands up, but I'm going to have you guys just rest your hands on your lap. I have students who have done this at board meetings with their hands under the table on their laps under the table. I have a student who's done it, giving a lecture, um, with her hands resting on the podium. Um, students who've done it in labor, uh, you know, where, whatever you could do at any time. So this is a practice called Niyasam. Uh, that I learned from my teacher. And it's wonderful for uh, pain management. It's wonderful for helping to focus the mind. I use it myself a lot for helping uh, as part of my meditation practice. It's wonderful for uh, calming and relaxation and helping to go to sleep. I do it a lot and I teach it a lot for sleep support also. So we're going to try it right now with your relaxed diaphragmatic breathing. Hopefully I won't put you <laughs> to sleep. So uh, again, I'm going to hold my hands up. You, you, it's a, I said, I, it, the Sanskrit is niyasam, but you can refer to it in English as just sliding fingers. And it's just that with your inhale and your exhale, you're going to start. And again, please remember, just keep your hands relaxed in front of you on your laps, even though I'm holding mine up. You're going to start with your thumbs at the base of each finger. And on the inhale, as you do that nice, soft, relaxed abdominal breathing, just slide the thumb up to the tip of the finger, maybe a gentle press, exhale, slide the thumb back down. Next breath, next finger. Inhale, slide the thumb up, maybe gentle press, circle, exhale, slide back down. Third breath, third finger, inhale, slide up, exhale, slide down. 
fourth breath, pinky. Inhale up, exhale down. So just going at your own pace. And there's really no way to do this wrong. You can exhale up and inhale down. You know, you can, you want to try to coordinate the sliding, the movement with your breath. So if your breath is a little shorter, then you might slide the fingers up and down a little faster, right? If your breath is a little longer and slower, then your movement of the thumb sliding up is going to be a little slower. So um, I encourage you to try this out, you know, again, even as I'm continuing to talk or maybe tonight as you're trying to go to sleep or I don't know, next time you're in traffic and you're annoyed or anxious or you're, I don't know, waiting to hear back from somebody, you know, just see how it feels, you know. Um, all of these practices are meant to not only be practical, but also accessible. And so I, the practices I love the most, you know, I love teaching the practices to my students that you can do anytime, anywhere, while you're getting a scan, in the middle of an infusion, waiting in line, you know, at the checkout counter or the doctor's office, or as I said, in traffic. The main thing is that whatever practice you choose or whatever technique you choose, um, the practices should resonate with you personally um, and feel the most supportive for your specific needs. So like if this is irritating to you and it's annoying or it doesn't feel good, don't do it. I mean, there's so many others that, that you'll get benefit from. Um, so don't do it. You want to make sure that it's comfortable, um, that there's no strain, because of course, right, we're trying to keep that parasympathetic dominant. So if there's any strain or any force, and certainly if there's any pain, actually what ends up happening is then you'll fire that stress response, the sympathetic, which we don't want. So you want to keep it nice and easeful. As my teacher, Mr. Desigachar used to say, he used to say, no pain, no pain, right? That's what we're going for. Um, you know, again, don't push yourself and remember that sometimes even the most simple of practices can be the most effective and that even three minutes a day um, counts as legitimate practice, even less than that. I had a, a long time, a good friend of mine who was dealing with metastatic breast cancer for a long time. And she told me she's um, I used to practice yoga with her for a long time. And she said to me one time, she said, Kate, sometimes all I can do are three conscious deep breaths standing at my kitchen sink. And I thought that was fantastic. I told her what a brilliant, beautiful practice, right? Can you imagine what the world would be like all of us if we, all of us just did three conscious deep breaths every day standing at our kitchen sink? Try that. You know, what a, what a practice. And, um, you know, the goal is that whatever you do helps support you, ideally meet those other goals that I said. But, you know, it's all about just what helps you feel better, what supports your system and helps you connect with yourself. You know, I shared with Suda, and we'll see how much time we have today. But I, um, you know, ultimately, it's about whatever we do to help us feel better, right? That's really our goal. And I had shared with Suda about um, seven years ago now, I was actually diagnosed with an aggressive uh, stage three, grade three breast cancer that required quite intensive treatment, a couple of years of intensive treatment. And you can imagine my practice, my yoga practice changed quite dramatically. I had some, you know, I had to go through chemotherapy and the whole deal, you know, as my oncologist called it the full court press. 
And, um, I was on some other drugs that impacted me. And, um, so my yoga practice changed and there were some nights where I thought of my friend actually, where all I could do is I used to sit on the edge of my bed and I would put one hand on my heart and one hand on my head and do this very simple little practice. I might as well just say it now (laughs) where I just spoke to myself and I just, um, reminded myself to just rest in my heart. That's all I reflected on. Just a few breaths sitting there on the edge of my bed. Just rest in your heart. Just rest in your heart. You know, and it was such a powerful practice for me, right? Somebody who'd come from like these very strong physical practices to be able to experience firsthand how something so simple could be such a powerful practice. So ultimately, any practice you do is about that connection with your own authentic self, whether through movement breathing, conscious deep relaxation, visualization or meditation, uh, even just remembering or entertaining the possibility of connecting with that quiet inner resource within you, right? That place of your own true authentic self, knowing that you are more than your diagnosis. You are more than this body, right? You're more than your mind and your titles and all those things are wonderful, right? All your accomplishments and your accolades and even our failures, right? That's we're so much more than all those things, Um, more than the car we drive, the house we live in, you know, not that we can't enjoy those things, right. Uh, Or feel sad about, you know, those mistakes or, you know, the crummy diagnosis, right. We're allowed to have our own authentic feeling response also, but it helps to remember that, Oh, that's not only who I am. That's just something that's happening to me, right. It's not who I am at my core. So, you know, it helps, you know, yoga ultimately for me is to help us remember that we have that capacity, that capability to connect and act from that quiet inner place of our own inner knowing of your greatest strength and resilience of that deep peace and great joy and your own shining radiant light. So remember that yoga teaches that while we may not be able to change or influence our circumstance, right? Our diagnosis or even what we're experiencing, our depression, whatever it might be, um, our living arrangement, whatever, we do have great power to influence our experience of that circumstance, um, thus reducing our experience of suffering and feeling better, no matter what our level of pain, no matter what our symptoms, no matter what our prognosis or outcome. So these are just some of the tools that I use, that um, I share with my students, that I use myself, and that help support you know, I hope you'll maybe start to incorporate some of, um, to help support the system at every level and find healing, um, no matter what any of us are facing. So I hope that they've been helpful for you as well. Thank you. Kate, thank you so much for that wonderful talk. And it's so Mm -hmm. grounded in your own experience, which is actually what makes it so powerful too. Thank you. So I'm now going to turn our attention to our next speaker, who is Ryan Shaver, and he's prepared um, a talk that he'd like to give us as well about his experience with yoga. So take it away, Ryan. Thank you. Um, when Dr. Prathakanti asked me if I'd be interested in sharing my narrative on the anxiety symptoms that brought me to the Osher Center and the role that yoga has played in my healing journey, I was enthusiastic. My interest was piqued, knowing that my story could be of service to someone else in their healing process or to practitioners 
seeking personal accounts of yoga alleviating anxiety symptoms. My enthusiasm was soon quelled when I realized I would actually have to write and present a comprehensible talk. While I've been able to write and present graduate philosophy papers on topics like connectionist cognitive architecture and Bayesian predictive processing, this talk seemed monumentally more daunting. My unsatisfactory drafts were constructed, each detailing the horror of my incipient trauma. While accurate, these drafts seem inorganic. They felt like an analysis rather than a personal and phenomenal account of my experience. Weeks went by, and then the river analogy came. Hardly an original analogy for mind, but I believed it helps illustrate my journey from a disconnected, anxiety-ridden hellscape to a more connected, compassionate, and resilient place I find myself in today. Like many who have suffered trauma, I too see my life's narrative in terms of pre- and post-trauma. If the mind is like a river, my pre-trauma river system flowed inefficiently, was propelled by artificial pumps, and the waters were often stagnant and muddied. Tidal boards were created from confused and contradictory top-down systems of belief, which were working against one another. My bottom-up systems were pumped with constant stream of caffeine and suppressants, all while my quest for logical consistency and order was fraying my distributaries connections to loved ones and the world itself. This turbulent and unwieldy river system forced me to erect makeshift dams, fill in abandoned canyons with sand, and shovel out my own grooves in order to reroute the river to my more linear aesthetics. These self-constructed levees, jetties, and dams were tenuously held together with grit and shaky hands. Like the mind, Water carves out grooves in its landscape through repeated exposure. The more exposure, the deeper the grooves become. The deeper the grooves become, the easier it is for the water to fall into those grooves. The grooves I had carved in my pre-trauma river were clearly untenable. These grooves were devoted to being overly logical, incisive, and dispassionate. Yet I spent a decade worth of energy trying to keep this ad hoc river system together. As with many ambitious individuals, I ignored the cracks in the dams, the deterioration of the levees and jetties, and continued my pursuits even as the waters became more turbulent. As history has witnessed, when the maintenance of dams, levees, and jetties go ignored and suddenly come under great stress, they burst. And on May 22nd, 2020, after 23 milligrams of THC floated my system, my dams, levees, and sandpack distributaries were wiped away, along with my river's connection to its source and its mouth. I was a body of water disconnected from everything which could give it shape. This disorientation manifested itself in a panic attacks. In the beginning, it was a terror doom state for over a week, with sleep being a tentative reprieve. When reading Steve Martin's Born Standing Up, I came across a passage which is strikingly similar to my experience. He writes, my life had been alternating, inching and leaping forward. I was proud of my job and had some cash. Things were rolling along nicely when I experienced a crushing psychological surprise. One night I was off to the movies with my friends. We decided to smoke a little pot, which had become a dietary staple for me. So now I was high, 
In the car on the way to the theater, I felt my mind being torn from its present location and lifted into the ether. My discomfort intensified and I experienced an eerie distancing from my own self that crystallized into morbid doom. I mutely waited for the feeling to pass. It didn't. And I finally said, I feel strange. We got out of the car and my friends walked me along Sunset Boulevard in the night. I decided to go into the theater thinking I might be distracting. During the film, I sat in stoic silence as my heart began to race about 200 beats per minute and the saliva drained from my mouth so completely that I could not move my tongue. I assumed this was the heart attack I had been waiting for, though I wasn't feeling pain. I was, however, experiencing extreme fear. I thought I was dying, and I can't explain to you why I sat, just sat there. After the movie, I considered checking myself into the hospital. But if I went to the hospital, I would miss work the next day, which might make me expendable at CBS, where my career was just launching. My friends walked me along sunset again, and I remember humming, whenever I feel afraid, I hold my head erect and whistle a happy tune from the king and I. I spent the night on my friend's couch in absolute terror. I kept wondering, am I dying? But was more concerned with the question, do I have to quit my job? The cycle was unbreakable. Any relief was followed by the worry of recurrence, which itself provoked symptoms. After a few weeks, a list of triggers developed. I couldn't go back into a movie theater and didn't for at least 10 years. I never smoked pot again. Now it could be funny, alert, and involved while nursing internal chaos, believing that death was inching nearer with each eroding episode of terror. I learned over the next months that I could do several things at once, be a comedy writer, be a stand-up comedian, and endure private mortal fear. I discovered that there was a name for what was happening to me. Reading medical and psychological books, I found my symptoms exactly described and named as an anxiety attack. I felt a sense of relief from the simple understanding that I was not alone. I read that these panic attacks were not dangerous, just gravely unpleasant. The symptoms were comparable to the biological changes the body experiences when put in danger, as if you were standing in front of an object of fear, such as an unleashed tiger. In an anxiety attack, you have all the symptoms of fear, yet there is no tiger. Knowing this state of mind wouldn't just go away on its own. On its own. I was lucky enough to find Dr. Prathakanti at the Osher Center. I reached out to Dr. Prathakanti and her team specifically because of her expertise in using the yoga framework to treat anxiety. Coming from the overly analytical world of philosophy, I believe that finding a credentialed Western practitioner with experience in a non-Western framework would provide me with the best chance for recovery. This intuition was fueled by my ideas of getting out of my head and moving toward a more embodied mind. Starting with a framework which had a language I was unfamiliar with seemed like a great way to get out of my head and build from the ground up. Yoga in a medical context, this mix of familiar and the unfamiliar, was greatly comforting and allowed me to have more trust in my practitioners and in yoga's ability to treat my anxiety. While the great THC delude had wiped clean many of my previous beds, grooves, and canyons, I found myself in a unique position to remap and rechart how I wanted my post-trauma river to flow. 
This remapping and recharting period was one of profound exploration and meaning making. What gives my life meaning? What gives our lives meaning? What is all of this? How do I actually want to live now that I have this second lease on life? I decided that instead of metaphysics and epistemology serving as my foundations for being, I choose to start with the tenet of connection. Connecting myself to myself, understanding that I am Ryan Shaver, the human being, and that I don't need to question my own ontology to live a good life. Connecting myself to my environment, what yoga and other frameworks refer to as grounding. Connecting myself to others, placing more emphasis on my relationships by engaging directly with them, as opposed to the pre-trauma river convention of trying to be smart or virtuous in order to gain respect and, and impress others. These three connections to the self, to the world, and to others have brought about levels of understanding and compassion, which I was previously cut off from. Many yoga practices place a constant emphasis on these three tenets of connection. Every day during my yoga routine, I tune into what my body is saying, and in so doing, emphasize the connection to myself. I believe that understanding myself on this corporeal level has allowed me to sympathize more with the unseen pains and trauma everyone else is carrying around in their own bodies. Cultivating compassion is much like any cultivation, I suppose, where daily awareness and labor will help promote its flourishing. I found the daily practice of yoga has been a great framework and an unexpected boon in my compassion for others. Yoga helped expose and identify the fragility, frightfulness, and vulnerabilities within myself. Through yoga's repeated and gradual exposures, I became increasingly more aware of how my body wore these states of mind. And with enough time, it became difficult to look at others without seeing how they wore theirs. Being able to see these states of mind being worn on others, I found myself being able to connect to them more deeply as a fellow being attempting to get by the best we can in this ever-changing world. This way of seeing has allowed for a fuller picture of the people in front of me. I found that this way of seeing conjures images of adults as children going through the world, looking for comfort and kindness. Through the time I've been practicing yoga, I found myself feeling more sympathetic, empathetic, and understanding to individuals I would have previously written off. I now am able to see the vulnerabilities, fragilities, and frightfulness in them, where previously I only saw weakness, wickedness, and cruelty. Another unexpected result of continued yoga practice has been an elevation of my sense of humor. Now that I've actively trying to make connections instead of acquiring them through ego building, I've found that I'm able to not take myself too seriously. It's easier to spot the old grooves that I may slip into or identify when others are slipping into less than helpful grooves themselves. Relationships during this time, I've been able to strengthen many long yet trickling streams into fun river rapids. Well, I didn't start my own yoga journey looking for connection, compassion, and humor. I found it in abundance and hope to continue finding them in a, as I practice. My new river system was not forged with an excavator nor shovel, but instead gently guided by the hands of yoga asanas, yoga breathing, and the routines in which yoga promotes. 
Asanas, breathing, and routines are the three yoga tools I've been able to use this past year and a half to receive such connection, compassion, and humor. Now, when there is a flood, I'm able to use one of my many tools to help channel the excess water into energy used for something else. As a result, I haven't had a mind-shattering anxiety attack since November of 2020. While there have been many heavy rains since then, and many times the river has threat was threatening to flood, I was able to use my bottom-up yogic tools to prevent catastrophe. Through this journey, I've learned that high-level thought patterns and behaviors are, far, are forged by repeated bottom-up actions. Compassion from the bottom up yields better probabilities of the river flowing in a more caring and playful direction. I've mixed many metaphors and I know some of my comments I've made will have my philosophy professors rolling over in their armchairs and to them I apologize. To everyone else, I hope this talk was engaging and or useful in some way. Thank you for your time. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me. And if you know any publishers interested in such a story, also feel free to reach out to me. Thank you so much, Ryan, for the courage to be able to share that story with us tonight. Really appreciate what you, what you shared with us. We're going to be moving into our question and answer um, phase. I just wanted to um, uh, just step back for a minute and, uh, and just sort of like ask Kate, as you were listening to Ryan share his story. Um, I just wondered, based on some of your own experiences in working with people with a range of different health conditions, uh, just wondering whether that resonated with any of, any of your own experiences on the practitioner side. Um, definitely. I've, I've actually, I've worked with students who have had similar experiences, actually remarkably similar experiences um, triggered by the THC. Um, and, and yeah, I'm just constantly amazed at what a powerful support for healing yoga continues to be for people. Um, it, it seems like over all the years that I've been doing this and working with individuals in different capacities, I'm just still continually amazed uh, at how supportive it is. I, I do feel like I should say you know, my teacher, Mr. Desigachar, was also very clear, though, that, you know, yoga is a, a complementary modality, right? It's not an alternative modality. He was very, very clear about saying that, that, you know, if that there are certain things that yoga works very well for that are within the scope. And there are many, many things that yoga can't help with. So, for example, um you know, right for my cancer treatment, right? Like I needed to get chemotherapy and it, you know, that's a difficult thing to have to do to your system. And I'm so grateful that I, I know that many people make the choice not to do that. I was very grateful that I made the choice to the choices that I did to treat the kind of cancer that I had. So, or if you have a broken leg, you know, or, you know, my son broke his arm, you know, both, uh, like through the skin, it was terrible, right? Like yoga is not going to help with that. So, so that's probably the most important thing too, is that we need to recognize, yes, yoga is such a powerful, can be a really powerful support for healing at multiple levels. And we always have to have that humility and that awareness of 
what the role of yoga is and what is not appropriate, you know, and where other interventions are um, required. Um, that's my strong opinion. Thank you, Kate. That's a really, really important reminder, actually, um, just to everybody that's you know listening to us out there that everything that we've presented, I think, in this series of talks, um, you know, uh, we, we typically will encourage people to, to use alongside other therapies um, as well, that this isn't meant to be a panacea <laughs> for all ills. And um, to really, you know, when we were talking about our self-care model, that the self-care model can include yoga, but hopefully does not exclude other forms of, of healing in addition. Um, I was just thinking, uh, Ryan, as you shared your story, I was just thinking about how, you know, we talked earlier in this uh, presentation about the range of practices that are part of yoga and that they can be both top down and bottom up tools and strategies within yoga. Um, and it sounds like for you, um, given that you were somebody who lived so much in your head, you know, that as a student and as somebody who um, really prided yourself on having really great cognitive mastery of certain topics, that um, you, you were very much somebody that, um, that had a lot of, a lot going on, let's say, in the head. And so do you think that that had any relationship to why you found bottom-up practices to be more personally useful for you? Yes. Um, I would say that there were a few times where I tried different top-down approaches. So um, reading the sutras and um, doing meditation, but I found that, you know, after after months of practicing the the yoga i was getting a lot more benefit um from doing the bottom-up practices yeah and i think that just shows the sort of demonstrates the flexibility of yoga and that idea that that i love that picture that you showed kate about the the cobra with a thousand hoods <laughs> that represented patanjali and that there is no one size fits all and that for each person who approaches yoga, there's, you know, a different right fit of practices and, and um, techniques that are going to be helpful to them. Um, and so um, it's there's, but the beauty of yoga is that it accepts that that's true, and that there's no one dogmatic um, approach that's, uh, that's really emphasized for all people. Um, and that being said, of course, um, there is, there is a, a structure and a rhythm and a way that all of these things flow together and work together within the yoga paradigm. It's not just supposed to be just like one tool or one practice to sort of being used in isolation necessarily from another. Um, but I do think that it gives a lot more freedom to each person, you know, to choose among the different practices, you know, what works best for them, keeping in mind, you know, uh, from the standpoint, we're, we're talking now about yoga as a mind body medicine, not necessarily as a spiritual path. Uh, but I think if we're going to be talking about yoga as a spiritual path, that does involve, I think, a more um, comprehensive view of, of a, ver a variety of different um, practices. We talked about Patanjali having eight limbs and that idea within Patanjali is that we're moving forward, um, you know, gradually at our own pace to getting to more contemplative practices that put us, you know, more deeply in touch with the authentic self, as you called it, Kate. But from a mind-body medicine standpoint, I just think, 
yoga is incredibly powerful in terms of giving us so many different options um, of what really worked for us. There's a couple of questions here um, that I'm just reading. I wanted to jump in. And the first one actually is to you, Kate. And um, one person is asking, do you work with disabled yogis or yogis with chronic health conditions? Yeah, very much so. It was one of the main uh, reasons, inspirations behind starting Healing Yoga Foundation is that um, I had spent almost 10 years living and working and studying in South India um, and working with Mr. Desikachar, who had started the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram, which basically served as an uh, outpatient healing clinic. And my experience uh, at that time of yoga in the United States was um, that it worked really well if you were young and fit and healthy and flexible. But there didn't seem to be a whole lot of options if um, you didn't fit into a certain. uh, So I was really determined to make it more accessible. And so, yes, I I would say that's one of my personal passions is I I feel like there's lots of yoga out there for um, young, fit, healthy. (laughs) So, you know, and now there's more and more for everybody. Um, But um, Mr. Jessica Char, you know, his great strength. My te- it's funny, I have this picture right here just to give a little shout out. Uh, his great strength was adapting the practices of yoga to anybody. And so his great advantage was he studied with his father, Krishnamacharya, um, for over 40 years. And Krishnamacharya used to say, you know, Deskachar used to say that Krishnamacharya always said, as long as there is breath, you can do yoga. As long as there is breath, there's yoga. So, um, you know, I was very lucky to have all, all those years studying with Mr. Desichar and having him teach me the adaptive practices. And, uh, and I've also been very lucky just in my work to have a lot of experience working with people with a whole different range of chronic conditions and um, life-threatening conditions and various uh, limitations um, of capacity. Um, so yes, is the that was a very long answer too. <laughs> yes, with pleasure. No, I, I love that. I think that that's really an important point to highlight that as long as there's breath, you can do yoga. Um, I mean, that was that was one of the points of our um, of putting this together is to highlight how yoga is accessible to everybody and not so much just you know like you were saying how it was how it's been portrayed more commercially, but this is something that anybody and everybody that has breath can do. I think that was beautifully put. There's another question here that I'm going to throw out to um, all of you guys. And um, Suda, you might know better um, just because this is research oriented, but someone is saying it's in the chat here. It says, I'm I'm remembering back in the seventies and eighties when transcendental meditation was being introduced in the West and the role um, of a clinical researcher, like Dr. Benson was one, um, they remember the role that they, they played um, in allaying fears and stereotypes among potential practitioners. They're wondering, are there similar researchers doing similar work with yoga, or uh, are we already way past that being a need? Yeah, no, absolutely. I do think it's really shifted. Um, I think in 60s and 70s, there was really a perception of yoga still being very much a 
a counterculture kind of practice and something that was really aimed at people who were interested in, in really turning away from Western medicine. And it kind of speaks to your point, Kate. You know, I think there were a lot of people who were looking for alternatives at that time rather than like thinking about putting things together with uh, Western medicine. So I think that um, the some of the early research that was published uh, about transcendental meditation really did kind of help break through um, some of those stereotypes because uh, that was like very early research really showing how meditative practices could lower blood pressure, could lower heart rate, and could really improve cardiovascular health. So that was probably one of the first areas that uh, Western researchers really took on. And actually, um, even now, that, that particular area really continues with folks like Dean Ornish, who's actually one of our adjunct faculty here at UCSF. But Dean Ornish has just published um, some really, really rigorous and just beautifully conducted research showing how meditative practices from yoga, how dietary changes that are part of the yoga uh, path can really be incredibly um, uh, helpful in reversing, you know, heart disease, not just keeping things where they're at and just helping you to function with what you've got, but actually reversing cardiovascular heart disease and um, being able to more recent, more recently, he's looked at prostate cancer and looking at how yoga practices actually can really help uh, prevent prostate cancer from developing into like more fulminant stages. So, you know, Kate, you were talking earlier about how, and I, and I, this is absolutely true. You can't just turn away from other uh, Western healing modalities to, to treat cancer, but there are so many ways in which more and more research is showing how yoga along with conventional cancer treatments can be incredibly powerful in reducing the need for chemotherapy, reducing um, the quality of life that you have, even when you do take chemotherapy, and then in really preventing a lot of the comorbid medical conditions that often you know, plague uh, folks with cancer or other medical conditions, whatever the primary condition is, it's being treated, you know, you can get secondary depression, you can get, you know, obesity and diabetes as a result of becoming more sedentary and, and yoga can help with all of those comorbidities as well as the primary condition. So like to answer that question, yes, there's been this um, incredible, I think, um, upwelling of research in all dimensions of healthcare uh, that started out with more cardiovascular, but then Herbert Benson in the 80s really looked at the relaxation response. He was really known for the book Relaxation Response, which showed how he actually went to Tibet and studied these master Tibetan yogis um, and how well they were able to control their autonomic nervous system uh, and be able to lower um, their heart rate and blood pressure, but also increase their body temperature just by sheer yogic practice to the point that they could live, um, you know, in these very high altitude, cold environments and meditate for hours on end, just wearing just a very thin cotton sheet and be able to maintain, you know, um, a comfortable body temperature, whereas other people would get hypothermic and die. Um, so of course, these are like master yogis, not most of us probably won't be able to control our autonomic nervous system to that extent. But it was just really groundbreaking research, again, that really showed the potential of yoga to um, that yoga practice um, really is just so so powerfully influences our nervous system. And, and it really provides a tool for all of us to be able to regulate that better. So it gets back to this idea of self-regulation and giving us more tools for being able to promote our own wellness.
Okay. Well, I think we're at time right now. So um, let's just wrap things up for today. Um, but I just wanted to thank both of our uh, guest speakers so much for joining us, uh, Kate Holcomb and Ryan Shaver, for sharing your stories. We got a lot of comments here just about people really appreciating um, your, um, your sharing your experiences with us. And thanks uh, all who were able to attend today. Take care and see you next week. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.